Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Hello and welcome to the Women Today podcast. This week we've learnt about a new charity being set up by two local mums, found out about the Manx Grand Prix, oh, and we were joined by a clown. But first we were joined by two guests who experience problems with their hearing. Now our guests today are here to talk specifically about tinnitus, something I think many of us will have heard of but know only as ringing in the ears and we'll be finding out more about the support available for people suffering from it on the island. But first, Matthew Rudd, let's find out a little bit more about you. You are the Advanced Specialist Audiologist at Nobles Hospital. How did you become interested in audiology? Um, Well, it, it I, I came to audiology quite late in life. Um, I've got a hearing loss myself, a severe hearing loss on, on the left side and a, a dead ear on the right. And um, I saw a course going at uh, U- University College in London and I thought, oh, that seems interesting. And it progressed from there. Um, I had uh, uh, seven years at um, St Mary's Hospital in Paddington and then I've since moved to the island uh, last year. You've also have experience of tinnitus. That's that's correct. Yes, um, I do occasionally get what's called high drops, um, where there's a, a, a change in my hearing levels, uh, maybe once or twice a year, where my my hearing seems to change, and then I will get a bout of tinnitus. Um, it can cause a, a, quite a bit of anxiety when it does happen, but usually it returns to normal after, after a period of time. Um, and then very occasionally I do get tinnitus, but it tends to come and go uh, at other times. If it's not a stupid question, what does your tinnitus sound like? Um, it's very, uh, Quite often it's very hard to describe um i suppose at best i could uh describe it as a, a sort of um it's almost like hum um and it can have different pitches uh it sort of changes suddenly it goes up uh, up uh, up a pitch um but um it doesn't really sound like sort of day-to-day sounds that one experiences so it's very difficult to say oh it's like a particular sound that we hear every day what actually is it then what causes tinnitus it's very hard uh, it it's very hard to actually say what causes tinnitus um, but having said that, there have been a number of experiments where they sort of demonstrated uh, what might contribute towards it. So for, uh, there's, a, there's quite an old experiment uh, date, uh, from 1953 uh, by Heller and Bergman where they got a group of people with very good hearing and they took them one at a time into a soundproof room giving each person the instruction to listen out for any sound they could hear in this soundproof chamber. The door was shut on them, but they didn't actually play any sound to them at all. They were left in complete silence. And what they found was that 95% of those people experienced tinnitus when they were put in that environment. So that very early experiment demonstrated that actually the ear makes a background noise. If it's quiet enough, you start noticing it, okay? And even if you've got very good hearing, if you put into a soundproof chamber and there are no sounds at all present in that environment, you will start to experience tinnitus. But there's nothing wrong with your hearing or your ears. Now, following on from that, it would then mean that if you have any underlying condition if you get a bad cold your ears get a little bit muffled it causes what's called an occlusion effect so one form of tinnitus could be that form where actually the underlying noise is not necessarily indicative of anything sinister but it's it's a side effect of some underlying condition like having a bad cold earwax in the blocking the ear that sort of thing so 
one uh, and then the the uh eustachian tube dysfunction that i was talking earlier about uh, where um say for example you go on an airplane uh the air air pressure at 32,000 feet is less than it's at ground level and you come down to land and lo and behold your hearing starts going it starts going down a bit until you pop your ears now until that moment uh, when you're descending the air pressure inside your middle ear cavity is still what it is at 32,000 feet so the air pressure external externally starts pushing the eardrum inwards and you start feeling uncomfortable you feel you want to pop your ears and then you pop your ears introduce air down your station tube into the middle ear cavity pop your eardrum and then your hearing goes back to normal it's almost like you feel as if you've got water in your ear isn't it yes. like when you you know you keep shaking your head to get it out that's right yeah so how many people actually suffer from tinnitus on the island do we know um well it's it's estimated it's like 15 percent of the population now of that 15 percent a proportion may have chronic tinnitus that's ongoing for a a considerable period of time some people might have it for a number of months a number of years other people might find that they get tinnitus for a short period of time after having a bad cold or they might have some sort of infection and then temporarily they will develop tinnitus but then after a period of time it resolves itself and it subsides and disappears. But There are a a small group of people who uh, suffer from tinnitus for long periods of time and then they find that, that they either get to a point of acceptance towards it or they get into a position of finding it extremely difficult with their day-to-day life. As you say, a, a huge range. That's right. Well, we are also joined today by Lucy Buxton. And Lucy, you suffer from tinnitus yourself. Yes, I do. I've had it for quite a few years now. And you also have other hearing loss, and so it's all part yeah, of it, one medical condition. Yeah, my tinnitus, it, it's sort of linked in with something else. I was diagnosed with many years disorder a few years ago, but looking back, I've actually had that and the accompanying tinnitus for oh, must be 30-odd years or more. So how how would you describe your tinnitus? Um, on a day-to-day basis, um, mine is quite easy to describe. It's, it's quite a high-pitched, whooshy, almost sort of static noise. You know, I can hear it now. It, it's just there in the background. Somewhere where it's quiet, I'm much. it's much more noticeable for me. But there are other times where if I'm particularly tired or particularly stressed, then it changes. It can get louder. Um, I've had times where I've torn the bedroom apart trying to find the ticking clock that isn't there to hear this ticking sound, which I think might be related to what Matthew was saying about the ear picking up on body sounds, because I I swear it's the same as my heartbeat. So it's that sort of regular tick, 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 and you're thinking, well, where's the clock? I've heard heavy machinery, I've heard sort of washing machine noises, all sorts. It comes and goes, but I've only ever had it at the point where it's uh, woken me up or it's kept me awake at night once and that was earlier in the year this year when I was sort of just particularly run down had a cold was under the weather too busy with various different things you say it's been over 30 years I cannot imagine how that must feel to just keep it there I don't know it's still being in your, inside your ear I suppose it gets for me it's 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 just me it, it's it's just there I have tinnitus it's there in the background I've learned um, I've done some relaxation techniques and things Matthew's been really helpful with giving me some CDs and things but the more stressed about it you get the more aware of it you are and the worse it becomes if I can get myself into that sort of yeah it's just there it's in the background it does it does fade away it never goes but my brain sort of switches into other sounds around so you'll never find me generally at home in a quiet room I will always have the radio on and preferably something with sort of talking on because the even if I can't hear particularly well because my hearing isn't great um, you just pick up on those the, the brain tries to hear the speech that's going on and tries to make sense of that speech and you fool the brain into thinking about that and concentrating on that sound rather than the tinnitus that the worst times the first thing in the morning and last thing at night that sense of kind of distraction I yes. guess away from it yeah Matthew I'm just thinking in terms of, of treatment and that kind of thing. But is there a cure for tinnitus? Not as such. Um, 
there there were there's help out there with managing the tinnitus uh, tinnitus um but it, as with regards to a cure uh, there isn't any any sort of uh, uh, pill that would fix all tinnitus. Um, I think part of the problem is that uh, there are lots of different presentations of uh, of, of tinnitus. Um, there can be certain underlying conditions that uh, m- uh, may be treated, uh, and as a result of which, uh, resolve the a problem with tinnitus. Uh, but that's not actually treating the tinnitus itself. It's actually t- treating a condition. So, um, for example, there is a uh, relationship w- between uh, TMJ, uh, temporal mandibular joint disorder, and also with uh, teeth grinding. Uh, and uh, there is, uh, as far as I'm aware, there there can be treatment for that. Um, and then uh, there are also straightforward treatments. Uh, say, if you've got a lot of earwax built up in your ear, then you may be hearing tinnitus more than otherwise. You extract the earwax, and then uh, the tinnitus will subside. That's really interesting that you say that, because I have got TMJ, and I do grind my teeth, and I have to wear mouth guards, and um, I do really suffer every now and again with, you know, the occasional day where I do get tinnitus, and I never actually put the two and two together, so I've learned something. We met through CAMS. We were completely separate, didn't know each other, and CAMS brought us together because we had two children who were struggling with mental health issues. Both of us wanted to find out more about the issues that were going on. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know about you, Lorna, but I read, I read mm. what was going on, but it wasn't the same as actually standing there with somebody else and talking face to face. Somebody who had been through what I was going through. Somebody who could put their arms around me and say, I know exactly how you're feeling. It's all right. I've been there. I've done it. We it's can, invaluable. That support that, is just it's, absolutely invaluable. To see, to see the look on somebody's face to and understand, and understand mm. exactly how you're feeling, that pit of despair that you're in as a parent, to know that your child is... I don't know, what's the word to use? Well, I think... Well, they're struggling, aren't they? They're, yeah. they're struggling, and, and they have some support through the GP has probably referred them to CAMS for for many reasons and many issues so there will be some support there for them I have to say I don't think it's enough support but there is some support there for them but there really isn't any support for the parent and quite rightly the child you know is is the one who is going through the experience so they need the medical assistance and they need the consultants but but as a parent, you're going through it as well. And when you leave that consultancy room, you're then the carer, the mother, the nurse, the psychotherapist, all of those things rolled into one. And that is so hard to do on a daily basis, 24-7. You may have other children, you may have a house full of family members that all need your attention. And it's exhausting. And to come across another mum who you just have to literally look at and they know exactly what you're going through. You don't have to explain anything. You know, just a phone call, a text message. And we have found, well, I know I have found massive support in Emma, just being able to sort of send her a message saying, I'm opening a bottle of wine. That's it. (laughs) You know, my day has just gone from bad to worse. And that's kind of how it is. And, And you might laugh, you might cry, you might shout, you might scream with each other but you understand. And every day there are parents out there struggling on their own because they haven't got that support and they've probably, like we did, looked for it. Google Parent Support Isle of Man. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Which is why we, I think, as two very headstrong people, really, and we're hell-bent determined that we were going to do this and yeah. we were going to make it work. We're not martyrs, we're not angels, we're not, we're not doing this for ourselves. We really are doing it because we know how it feels to be on the floor, kicking and screaming, and you don't know which way to turn, you don't know who to turn to. And we just want people to know that we're there and the bigger the network is, the more support there will be. First of all, we started off trying to just do a support group, a small support group, but we couldn't get the exposure because obviously we're trying to keep it quite private and quite personal. 
And then we just said, you know what, we need to form a charity, we need a registered charity number so we can start fundraising and getting getting it out there, basically. Do you think you're brave? No, possibly stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, that's exactly what I was Um, going to say. I think it's just you feel so passionate about it because you've experienced it, you've actually lived... You know, our children are actually doing okay now. You know, we sound like we're going, you know, living a nightmare. We have done, mm. but on more than one occasion. Yeah, but but they're kind of they're coming to terms. They're getting a bit older, a bit of maturity, and it's sort of you know things things are in place to help them. But I often think about the young ones now who are just maybe going into secondary school, who are just going to start feeling that pressure come September. Parents who, like us, will be all of a sudden hit with this teenager who's struggling. And we we want to see a lot of stuff other than this support group, you know. And as you say, this is very much for the the parents who are just trying to keep it all together. Keep the heads above water. Yeah. Just to try and, you know, support support enough to, 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 to drag somebody out who feels like they're drowning just every now and again, just to, to throw them a life jacket. So what are the plans at the moment? What's what's going to happen next? The plan, the first step is we need to do some fundraising because obviously without some money in the bank account for the charity, we can't offer too much other than just a phone call or maybe, you know, just us running around maybe, you know, trying to support everybody, which is just not going to happen. But we've got a number of other mums who would like to come on board and support the charity, all with different skills. You know, they, they they may be able to teach yoga, they may do horse riding, they may do whatever, massage, anything. But all of us together can support each other in different ways. So first of all, we need to do some fundraising. We need to get as much support from local businesses as we can. We're going to do a dance-a-thon at the villa, fingers crossed, if we can get all the support we need. And it's looking like it's heading more towards Christmas now. We've got a number of dance teachers who are very much involved and, and want to support us with that. And then from there, depending on the funds and what we have available, we would like to start offering out different things. Um, Maybe a local support group. Ideally, we would love to have a north, south, east and west location. I mean, we're looking to have instant support, aren't we, for people as well? Because as a parent, the the time that you want that support is, is then... It's not tomorrow. Well, like, it's no, yeah. and it's not. Oh, we can offer you an appointment. On mm-hmm. you need that help, and you need it now. If you're that desperate that you are asking for help as mm-hmm. a parent, apart from anything else, you feel like you're failing as a parent mm-hmm. to to actually voice the fact that you need that support. You you want it now, so we're looking at, at mobile phones yeah. and and different parents who within within the charity will hold the phone on a, a rotor basis. And these ch- the, the the parents, you know, they're not just nosy parents who are looking to sort of talk to to, to people and find out their business. They're going to be skilled with listening skills. Samaritans have been very supportive. They've said that you know they will they will help us to gain the listening skills once we can get the funds in place and we. Can and sit down and work up you know a full team of sort of everything out then we can work out who we can support who needs it most hopefully in the future might be able to employ these sort of people through the charity so that we can have 24-hour cover at the end of the phone 24-hour assistance for for the parents that actually like i keep saying that pit of despair because they feel that they need that support now. Our guest today is Caroline Etherington, the manager and race secretary of the Manx Motorcycle Club and a leading figure in the organisation of the Manx Grand Prix. Caroline, practice starts this weekend. This must be quite a stressful part of your year. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's very busy, but it's sort of now we're just... Uh, tomorrow we start signing on the riders. So I would say the last two weeks is when you just... The, it's been absolutely, totally full on. We're just sort of fine-tuning the last arrangements now and all the riders have all well a lot started arriving on Monday so there's lots of people up at the grandstand so it's starting to get a really good buzz about it which is nice so the riders are coming in and out of the office and is that sometimes the first time you meet some of these riders face to face that you might have emailed or spoken to the, te- on the yeah, telephone with? Yeah, I mean the newcomers, a lot of the guys and, and the girls have been coming sort of for a few years now but it's always nice to put a to put a face to a name, you know, when we're, when we're dealing with the riders and the newcomers particularly, if there's always loads of questions to ask, you know, because it's quite a daunting, it's quite a daunting thing. A lot of them, if they're coming from overseas, you know, Australia, New Zealand, they have done it before. So that logistics, a lot of them will bring their bikes as well. So they have to be shipped over months in advance. So 
And they start moaning about where they are in the paddock. And, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. too close to the Mostly park the weather. Or... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, as a New Zealand left his um, winter behind and it's warmer than it is here now. So mm. it's... Um, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine there's a lot in the morning, of... isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> well, as yeah. we heard earlier, you mm. started the Manx Motorcycle Club in mm. 1988. Mm. And you actually say that when you walked into your first committee meeting, you mm. were greeted by... 18 men yeah what was that like for you as a young woman um it was a it was a bit was a bit daunting you know they've all been involved with motorbikes for quite a long time and it was just I was just sort of feeling my way along and trying to get all the information together because they're all we're all senior race officials so they're all starting to um, explained to me how the event ran and I actually got some hands-on well, hands experience during the event. I went over into the time box and learnt how the timekeepers operate and I went round all the different departments. Um, so the first year it was quite... This, it was like a, an overload of information but it was, it was great when you went round all the different departments. I could actually see from the administration point of view why why I was doing it and how it all coordinated and so there's so many people involved but it's actually during the event it all absolutely runs like clockwork well apart from a few minor glitches but everybody just is such a big team that all work together. Interestingly though you started actually before women could compete in the MGP yeah that was in 1989 I think yeah 1989 so we had three female riders for the first time were they taken seriously well some of the some of the male riders I think they knew them but there was a lot I think there were sceptical sort of you know would they be able to manage to ride around the TT course you know because they're a woman and you said there was a few Jokes yeah, about women yeah, drivers. female, yeah, fe- this, the equivalent of female drivers. It was female riders, so I think we must have heard everyone in the in the book by that time. But yeah, it was it was great. You know, it was um, some of the old school were sort of well, women riding bikes, you know, sort of thing. But majority of them, they you know they at that time everything was changing, so that women were starting to get more you know sort of bigger roles and important roles, and also be introduced to often male-dominated sports areas. And, you know, all around the world it was changing and women were sort of wanting to be recognised that they were they equally could do all these different sports or various careers. And now, so 26 good. years later, mm. they're very much seen as equals, I hope. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So how many women are competing this year? Uh, four. So we have one lady from... Janice Lehman, who's from South Africa. We have Ali Foster, who's local, and uh, Sarah Boys and Jenny Timms. So, yeah, it's great that we've great that we've got the women, and it's there's also a lot more women involved in the organisation as well. Is there room for one more? Oh, definitely. This is Doris. Yeah. Do you yeah. think do you think I could fit on the back of a bike? <laughs> I don't know whether the crash helmet would fit on that wig with the rollers in. Can you imagine your leathers. <laughs> Goodness me, the colours. I find it hard to keep a straight face while I'm talking here. Oh, you, can see. you just look at me. Look at me, okay? I'm straight across from you, just eye contact. Doris with a, with a weird wig on. <laughs> well, tell me about the newcomers then, because I know you've, you've had an incredible number, an incredible mm. response this year. Whereabouts are they all coming from? Yeah, I mean, they're coming from where well, we've got England, um, we've got Ireland, we've got uh, Japan, um, Italy, France, Germany, uh, Australia, New Zealand. So... It's great, you know. It really, is a very much an international event, and we have we do have some two weekends earlier on in the year where riders can come over, and you know they they're taken on to do laps around the course, and we explain the whole process of entering the event, and they get to see how a bike needs to be prepared for the races, and it's it's a really good really good learning opportunity for them. But that only really tends to be obviously the ones from overseas. I can't really afford to come for a weekend but there's lots of riders also newcomers that come over throughout the year not just on those weekends just to do laps because they realise that it's all very well watching it on a DVD but it's not or playing the games that are around the world now yeah they're playing the games and they actually find from playing the games when they come to do it you know for real that actually the road camber is a lot different than just seeing it on the Playstation games so they're very dedicated and you know we're constantly getting 
emails from them asking lots of questions and wanting to talk to the experienced riders and we have we have a minibus that goes out during practice twice a day and they're just experienced riders either ex- current riders or ex-riders they'll take them out and if they're having any problems with certain corners or sections of the course they'll stop they'll get out and walk it and talk it through so it's it's you know really is it's great so we're hoping that they'll they'll stay with us for you know a couple of years if they until they they want to move on some don't some are quite happy stay with the Mount's Grand Prix. As you said before as well that there isn't the prize money so no. there must be that sense of loyalty or you must try mm. and drill in mm. that sense of loyalty to the Manx. Yeah yeah I mean they they really are you know they they get either a medal for finishing the race or they'll get a, a trophy or a replica um, so they are very very dedicated very passionate about what they do. When we talk about the Max Grand Prix, I think we often assume, though, that these are the riders who who just aren't good enough for the TT. Do you think that's fair? No, I don't think it's I don't think it's fair at all because a lot of riders will start um, with the Manx Grand Prix and cut their teeth on the event, and there probably isn't quite as much as much pressure, so they can really um, learn the course and then they'll then they'll move on. Um, but but the TT, you've got the you know you've got people of all varying abilities, and it's the same with the Manx Grand Prix. And some of them are quite happy to; they're not wanting to move up the ranks, and they will you know they'll stay. They'll improve their own times every year. But no, I mean I think the, the all the riders at the Manx Grand Prix have a lot of ability. Do you think it's unfair to try and compare the two when they are obviously such separate entities, the Manx and the TT? Well, I think at the TT, there's the the very top 10 bands, but then I would say the rest of the field, you know, there's, there's, they're equally on a, you know, they're on a par, the Manx Grand Prix are on a par with them. Women Today, brought to you by CityWing.com for your next flight away. And our guest this afternoon is Dr. Katrina Mackey, a history lecturer at the Isle of Man College. Katrina, we're going to speak now about what is on offer at the college in terms of higher education. But firstly, what does higher education actually mean? Right. Um, Broadly speaking, higher education refers to any sort of post-18 level education that's at university level. So you've got your basic undergraduate degree programmes, which are three years or four years. Um, You've got uh, HNC, one-year HNC or a two-year HND or a two-year foundation degree. They're all kind of university level qualifications. Um, So that's higher education. Further education, I guess you could describe as those qualifications that are um, at the same level as A-level, um, whether it's a BTEC or whatever else. So it's a university-level qualification, really. The Isle of Man College is an associate college of the University of Chester. What does that mean in terms of getting your degree or your qualifications and actually graduating? Um, it means that all of our degree programmes are uh, validated through the University of Chester. So if you come to study at the Isle of Man College, you're actually you're not just an Isle of Man College student, you're a University of Chester student. And that means that you've got access to all of the facilities that are available through the University of Chester as well. So you, you get the best of both worlds. You've got access to all of their online resources, as well as all the fantastic resources that we have here at the college. So it's almost like the Isle of Man College is uh, something like a, uh, an external campus of the University of Chester. I think when I was at school, and certainly a bit earlier than that as well. The Isle of Man College was seen as somewhere that you went to do those vocational skills. It it seems like over the last few years, the Isle of Man College has done a lot to try and demonstrate that it is also an academic institute. It's changed quite a lot over the last few years, um, particularly the last four years the college has really developed its higher education offering and that's it's partly in line with the, the government's um, agenda to develop the number of Manx graduates so that we've got a very highly skilled and highly educated workforce on the island. Um, but just in general, I think we're seeing a, a, a sea of change whereas previously higher education meant going to university, which meant going to the UK. Nowadays, um, getting higher education is a choice between going to the UK or staying at the Isle of Man College because we have so many different programme areas on offer. So we've we've developed at the college um, our programmes to partly to meet the economic needs of the Isle of Man. So we've got computer science, engineering, business studies, events management and marketing, but also we've developed courses in areas of cultural importance such as art and history and heritage, um, both of which I should also say have considerable economic benefit to the island. Do you think the 
opportunity or the option of going to the college is seen as a a like for like as going to university in terms of its weight as a a qualification? I I think now it is, yeah. We've been doing a lot of work with schools and talking to teachers um, in schools and and really getting them to understand that what we're offering now is it's a university degree. So it's a degree with Chester University, a very, very reputable university in the UK. Um, And there are actually a lot of advantages to studying at the college. Our students um, tend to do better than their UK counterparts. So we've, um, over the last few three years, for example, um, 71% of our students have graduated with either a first class degree or a 2-1. And that's much higher than the UK average. Um, but also in terms of employability, there are advantages to studying on island. So um, over 90% of our students routinely find relevant employment before they graduate or on graduation. And again, that's a that's a huge percentage of the student population. Um, and there are various reasons for that. It's partly partly because we have really good students who work really hard, um, partly because we have excellent teaching staff who are very highly experienced and very highly motivated. Um, it's partly because students have access, as I mentioned, to the excellent facilities that we have here at the college, but also the excellent facilities at the University of Chester. And also... If you're studying at the Elderman College, we tend to have fairly small class sizes, and that means that students get a very high level of personal and academic support throughout their degree, which you tend not to get in a UK university, whereas if, if you're studying history at UK university, you might be in a class of two or 300 people, whereas at the Elderman College, um, you're looking at 10 to 15 people. So, Does it work in the same way that you have to get uh, the relevant uh, A-levels or, or something similar, and you have to get a B and two Cs? Or... Yeah, um, what we ask for um, is, uh, if for school leavers, we're asking for 240 UCAS points for most of our degrees, so it's, it's very similar to what you'd find in the UK. Um, the application process is slightly different, so rather than applying through UCAS, you actually apply directly to the Isle of Man College. Um, but what we suggest to students is that when they're thinking about what they want to do and they're applying to UCAS to also submit an application to the Isle of Man College as well, and when they get the results in, they can decide which offers they want to accept. Um, and I, I think it's becoming more... People are starting to realise that going to the UK to study is not necessarily for everybody. Um, some people prefer to remain at home to retain those family and social networks and the support that they get from them. Some people, um, for some people, it's just more financially viable to stay at, at the college. So that there's no, um, if you go to study in the UK just now, the government are asking for a two hundred. Um, £2,500 um, tuition fees contribution every year um, and, and I should say that the government are still very very generous in the support that they give to students um, but if you're studying at the Isle of Man College you don't have to pay that con- contribution fee. Do you think that a lot of people are really taking that, that side of things more seriously now that, that thinking about the financial consequences of three years in the UK because I suppose it's not just fees as you mentioned there's living costs there's going back to the island Absolutely. it all comes into it yeah and I think people are starting to think more seriously um, partly because we now have um, so much more on offer on island um, but partly again because of changes in the economy um, people are starting to think well what is it I really want to do and again if, if ultimately you want to work on the island then there are advantages to studying here because you have the opportunity to engage with potential employers throughout the course of your degree and the degrees that we have at the college take advantage of that. We have very strong links with businesses and industries on the island so um, students are actually um, have a very lots of opportunities including work placements, including student projects to actually get to meet with the people that they might end up working for at the end of their degree. Have the numbers largely increased over the years of students coming to the Isle of Man College and do you think that's because of the backup we were just talking about there with the financial implications? With, with higher education certainly um, we've got nearly 300 people now, students studying higher education at the Isle of Man College so it's a really nice close-knit community and we have lots of events um, that are specifically for our high what's that, students. What, what's that compared to when you say you've got 300? Like, what is that as an increase compared to maybe last year? Or Oh, I think last year we had round about 250-ish. Okay. And so, yeah, so it's, it's been increasing year on year, partly because of um, we have more programmes on offer now and partly because I think students are thinking a little bit more carefully. And there are also people on the island that want to get a higher education degree but who can't leave the island they might be carers they might have children to look after so giving them the option to get those um, academic benefits on island is is excellent you mentioned the 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 numbers and the close-knit community and I just thinking back on my own higher education and my time at university 
I guess a big part of it for me, though, wasn't just the academics. It was the fact that you were meeting new people. There were hundreds and hundreds of societies you could join. There was the student union. What is the Isle of Man College doing to to provide that side of, of university or higher education life? Well, there's certainly no way that we can compete with the types of offers that you're going to get in UK universities. We don't have hundreds and thousands of societies, but we do have a number of um, uh, clubs and societies at the college that you can actively engage with. Um, it's In a sense, nowadays, it's it's important to get a good grade during your do- when you're studying, but it's also important to take part in academic life, as you said. It helps to boost your, your life skills, your employability skills at the end of the day. So we do have a lot of ways in which you can get involved at the college. We run the Duke of Edinburgh Award, for example, and we have lots of sporting activities that you can engage with. We actually have a student experience officer who's dedicated to helping um, improve student experience. Um, if you wanted to set up a club, the student experience officer will help you to do that. So there are actually quite a lot. And the other thing that we would say is that although um, the college itself doesn't have the facilities that a larger university has, you're living on the Isle of Man. So your campus actually is the whole island. And there are so many things that you can engage with, um, places where you can get part-time jobs, you can volunteer, you can actively engage with all sorts of things, both at the college and on the island in general, that will help to um, improve your experience as a student. And as you say, it's it's often more flexible if you are a carer or you can't leave the island for some reason. Do you offer part-time courses? Yeah, most of our degree programmes are also available part-time for those who are um, working part-time or working full-time even. So yeah, that's definitely an option. And I think higher education in general is becoming a lot more flexible these days where you can... um, chop and change a little bit so you can start a degree part-time and then switch to full-time if you want. Um, One of the things that we're offering on the new history and heritage degree is that if you start the degree at the Isle of Man but decide that in year two or year three you want to experience life at the University of Chester you can actually transfer to their history degree and finish your degree there. Where can you find out more information or possibly pick up a prospectus? Yeah, we have a very good website, um, iomcollege.ac.im, and you can find information on there about all of our different degree programmes. And there's a prospectus on there, uh, application forms and information about who to contact if you want further information. It's something we hope our loved ones will never go through, and I'm sure something that shapes you for the rest of your life. But what is it really like to lose someone you love at an early age? And what support is available here on the Isle of Man for those who do? Well, that's what we're hoping to find out today as we're joined in the studio by three people from Cruise Kids, a part of Cruise Bereavement Care Isle of Man. Firstly, Jill Skinner. Keen listeners will recognise your name, recognise your voice. You've been on the programme before, so we didn't scare you away too much. You didn't, Kate. No, it was lovely. Oh, glad to hear it. So remind us then, what is your role at Cruise? My role, um, I work primarily with older children so high school age I have another colleague the other Jill who you met last time who works primarily with primary school children however obviously we we do sort of support each other at different times and our role uh, we provide a whole raft of support for children young people who've been bereaved and with crews it is um uh we don't have a waiting list we we see the children young people straight away Uh, We see anybody, um, irrespective of the time since the death, uh, the relationship with the person who's died. And we don't have a a sort of an end of time. We don't see them for, say, six weeks and you're you're mended now. We're talking specifically today about cruise kids. What's the idea behind that? It came really from, initially, uh, we we supported on a one-to-one basis and a common theme amongst the young people I was working with was that they felt isolated and they didn't know anybody else in in a similar situation. We've not called it cruise kids, it's what our our cruise kids have dubbed it over the years and so we extended that to nine years ago we had our first sort of social event and it's sort of grown from there uh, to to where we're at today which I'm sure we'll talk about as, as, as our three quarters of an hour goes on. How does bereavement differ for young people from your point of view? It depends very much on the age and, like anything else, uh, upon the individual concerned. Uh, The main difference is with an adult. As as adults, we all understand that bereavement is a permanent loss, a death. Somebody cannot come back. Whereas with a small child, their cognition, their development, they don't have that understanding at that stage. Um, and so it, it, we have a different style of working there. 
and then at, at each sort of developmental stage people may often and do often grieve afresh as, as they it's it's a new level of understanding i think last time you were on you were talking about those those landmark points in in yes. a person's life the, the graduation yes. the wedding day yes i suppose that's something that children keep being reminded of as they go on yes they do and sort of particularly um for instance say christmas mother's day father's day um starting a new school all all of those milestones but we particularly at christmas we always meet and have a big social before christmas because christmas is a time when everybody's happy uh except you you know you you have these young people with a smile on their face but you you know it's uh there's always what's going on behind there well, as you say, we are also joined in the studio by two young women who have benefited from Cruise Kids over the last few years. Becca Great-Batch, how did you find out about the support that was on offer? Um, I think it was like my mum seeing it in the newspaper and because it was like quite a few years after like we lost our dad, it kind of made sense because my mum had had like support herself, whereas me and my sister didn't have that with us being such a young age so my mum just contacted and was like would you be able to help us and I haven't left since. (laughs) You lost your dad in 2004 yeah can you tell us what happened? Um well it was kind of like a late diagnosis of multiple myeloma which had stemmed in his spinal cord and by the time that they kind of like discovered it and diagnosed it it was just basically too late but at six years old you don't really understand that. And it was just kind of really difficult. Is it possible to pinpoint when you do start to, to understand and comprehend it? Not really. <laughs> no. How important has it been for you then to to meet people and, and talk to people who really do understand what you've been through and what you're talking about? It's been absolutely amazing, like, because you find that people are in similar situations and you're not kind of alone. So it's really, it's helped so much. <laughs> Well, Neve Stringer, you also lost your dad to cancer. You were just 13 years old. Is it possible for you to explain what that was like? Um, it was it was really hard um, because for me and my sister, um, dealing with something like that, even though I was 13, you know, as a teenager, it's still, like, trying to understand, you know, like, what was going on, even though, you know, my mum and dad tried to explain, you know, because they wanted us to know it's still like now I'm older and I have more understanding like Jill said you kind of like you start breathing again you're like because now you understand you know what it went what you know and then so my dad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer but he, he was very ill for most of me and my sister's life so um you know he'd go into hospital but we'd always we always there was always that hope that he'd come back because he always did and then um, we found out about Cruz through hospice, so um, my mum contacted Jill, and um, yeah, like the same as Becca, I, I really enjoy going there, and I, I think you know there'll be many more years that'll be really good. Is it weird when you tell people that you enjoy it? Yeah, I find it hard. Like, like I say, like I, I enjoy meeting new people, but there's less. There's less awkwardness when you can talk to somebody that, that understands what you're going through. So, like, the conversation flows better and, you know, it's just... People aren't tiptoeing around you, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, because, like, even though I have friends at school that maybe not have been through the same experience, um, you know, nobody will ever understand, but trying to make them, you know, have some understanding is very hard if... You know, but when there's people that have been through the same thing, it's it's a lot did better. Did you did you find that? Because my my wife lost her uh, father when she was in her teens, and she said again the problem was you know she had lots of friends, but then people then stay away. Some of her own friends didn't talk to her because mm. they didn't know what to say because yeah. they was like oh gosh um, you know. And instead of doing something, they were so worried about saying the wrong thing or not saying that they just stayed off, which made it even worse. Then did you yeah. do you, you experience that sort of? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Mm. Because they like sorry, <laughs> they feel like bad to say something, but then they also feel bad, like bad, like they don't want to say anything. Mm. So it's like it's hard either way. Becky, you've just qualified as a mentor for Cruise. What does that actually mean? Um, it means that I'm able to support the younger members of Cruise Kids on like kind of a professional manner. So 
instead of speaking to adults because when you are younger it can be daunting to speak to older people but when when you've got someone closer to your age it's kind of easier so I'm able to now help them like Jill helped us I think she's here Jo I think she's here I'm here <laughs> she calls herself a businesswoman turned sacred clown healer and holy fool and performs in theatres prisons hospitals and at street festivals Rachel Kane thank you for joining us I don't know thank whether I'm allowed you. to call you Rachel now you're in costume no, you can yes yes I'm still here although Doris is Doris my alter ego is certainly beamed in I would say your, your alter ego Doris is Doris the new age guru Yes. Who exactly is Doris? Who is Doris? Um, well, it's me, by the way. Hello, everybody on Manx Radio. Uh, I am Doris, beaming in from another planet. And um, I'm also known as Doris Eagle Feather Duster. Um, that's my shamanic name. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm a guru, love. A guru. <laughs> a guru. Explain exactly how you uh, you like to dress, Doris. Well, um, it's such a pity, isn't it, that radio isn't visual. Um, yes, I've got a very nice wig on with some rollers in. You can have a look online. You'll be able to see me. I've got. Uh, I don't bother too much with makeup. I think mascara is a waste of time. I just plunk my specs on and smear me a gob with lippy, um, and then I'm done and dusted, ready to go out and face the world. Feather dusted, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> can I speak to Rachel again, please? If Hello, that's okay. I'm still Hello, here, just about. <laughs> Just about. I think we're. we're <laughs> I knew this was going to be very confusing, isn't it? <laughs> Two for the price of one. There well, you go. Rachel, yeah. you had a very successful career in London, in the city, in the 1980s. Yes. Talk me through how you went from that to now living in Ibiza as Doris. Right. Um, I'll just remove Doris's wig so I can beam back in myself. Um, yeah, I, it wasn't overnight. And actually, big transformations are never overnight. They they sound like amazing stories when you read them. But really, it's only ever one step at a time. So it was a process for me of about oh, 20, 30... Well, no, in the actual process of changing from being a businesswoman to becoming a clown um, was a seven-year process. It didn't just happen instantly. And um, principally, it started with me realizing and and really fully accepting that the job that I was doing just wasn't me and and being brave enough to walk away without knowing what I was going into I think that's the thing when you're making any big transformation is to not is to is that willingness to just leap into the dark and go into the unknown and really not know what's coming next so it's quite scary but I took that leap and I knew I had enough money to cope for about four or five months but it became a seven-year transformationary process before I became a clown or or the journey to become a clown um, and actually it wasn't really becoming one it was more like reclaiming parts of who I really was in my soul mm. and my essence Things that I had known from when I was a child, um, I re-embraced dancing, um, singing, um, getting back into my body, doing a lot of physical, because clowning is basically physical theatre. So I did a lot of courses along the way of mask work and, and I was very, very blessed to meet um, a wonderful teacher who um, himself was a clown and he, I did a four-year training with him and most of the work we did was clowning in a healing context. And through the workshops and the training, I then um, became brave enough to, to start doing the work myself. So along that process, I worked with special needs and um, one thing and another. This was all still in London. And then eventually I just got to the point where I just wanted to break free completely um, and leave. And that's when I joined a circus. I'm yeah. really sorry, Rachel. I, I'm listening to you. You're very being very serious, very sensible. And I'm yeah. struggling with lipstick <laughs> With the lipstick smeared around my just across your face. <laughs> Um, just going back, you said clowning through healing. Or, you know, can yes. you just explain that briefly for me? What you mean by that? Yes, because most people think of clowning slapstick circus. That's what they, you know, they imagine clowns just doing that kind of work. We really, when you're a real clown, it's actually not just about being funny. It's about being authentic. So um, you will express all the range of full range of human emotions to which we're all um, sub. So you know we, we we all feel these things, but we will ne we won't necessarily express them. Well, a clown has full permission to be sad, happy, angry, um, bored. All of the full. It, it really, a, a real clown is master of emotion. And when you're going into healing situations, for example, in hospitals or hospices, especially where people are coming close to the end, and there's so much going on emotionally, a clown can um, meet that emotion in full force. And through meeting it, it's like being a mirror to the soul, really, of who you're, of your meeting. Mm. And that then becomes like transformatory medicine, and it, and it dispels, takes away the fear. 
And that's something you've actually done on the island. Uh, only a little bit here. I did a little bit. I went into the hospice once, and um, that was when I was looking after my dad. He he came back to. He was a Manx man. He came back to the island. He died here, and when he was here, I was looking after him. So I did a little bit in the residential homes, and um, and just once in the hospice here. But I have done a lot in hospitals and hospices. Yeah. You mentioned about kind of re-finding yourself and connecting with those those parts of your personality that you perhaps shoved somewhere else for a bit. Yes. Do you think then that we, we all have an inner clown? I do, and my work is called Clown Within, and I do think that everybody's got that inside them. It's, initially, it's inner child work, so it's like finding the, the playful spirit inside, but I do think everybody's got that. It's, all, it's a stripping bear, actually, to become a clown. It's like you, you go to the process of becoming empty, and we can all do that, but it's like, it's like taking the layers away. And so a lot of what I do with people in workshop situations is helping them to not be afraid to be stupid. You know, not risk, risk looking the fool, which is, you know, this. Just, just, just risk it. Don't worry about what people think. Really don't worry about what people think. We often say we don't, but there's usually a bit of people that, that does somehow. Something that's holding yeah. us back from, from yeah, yeah, looking the fool, as yeah. you say. So I just help people to be more free, yeah, initially. And yeah. is that always laughter, or do people's other emotions come out doing that? We do, we laugh a lot, and we and there's also veils of tears as well. A lot of crying, yeah, a lot of crying, and that they become healing. You know, that becomes part of the healing process. So, how do people yeah. react when you tell them what you do? What I do, um, most people actually get intrigued. They say a lot of people say, "Oh, I've never met a real clown before." <laughs> Yeah. Do people ever say, do you know what, I'm just really terrified of clowns? Because that's a common yeah. fear. Children, I was going to say, actually, I was going to ask you, because yeah. children really are quite scared of clowns, aren't they? Um, some can be. I had I, When I was in the circus, there was a very insensitive slapstick clown who did some stuff right on the ringside, and little two-year-olds, some of them were in tears, and I think a lot of it can start with that if you get a very insensitive clown. But... Um, no, not I. I have had the situation where people have come to me and said they have been, and then through doing work with me, they said, "Oh, thank you." You know, I, actually, now I really understand what clowns do because really, where they get wounded is by clowns who are not really real clowns. Actually, they're just people who've plonked on the the you know put the nose and the and the slap on and and been rough. Um, yeah. And also the other thing about clowns where people are very frightened is because we are such mirrors that actually we show up, we, we see through everything. Now that puts people into that place of, you know, they can't get away with anything. So it can be quite scary being in front of anyone. It doesn't have to be a clown, but anybody who can are see the truth. Are you scared, Kate? I'm really scared. You're I not. someone tapping into my soul <laughs> and seeing, seeing that the true, true fear and... You know, insecurities inside me jokes I can't say it's pleasant <laughs> thanks again to all our guests this week and don't forget if you miss a programme you can always listen on demand to the whole thing via manxradio.com or of course join us every weekday from just after two o'clock don't sit in the slow lane join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all new super fast plus broadband Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click shaw.com. Love being Shaw. Terms and conditions apply.